Welcome to Soundtrack Your Life, a podcast about soundtracks, music, and movies. Each episode features a guest and focuses on a specific soundtrack and the personal stories connected to it. Now here's your host, Ryan Pack. I'm Ryan Pack, and this is Soundtrack Your Life. I'd like to thank you for listening, whether you're a longtime listener or this is your first episode. Uh, today, David Ballantyne of the Vinyl Score YouTube channel is our guest. Welcome back, David. Thank you, Ryan. I appreciate it so much. Today, we're going to talk about the 1999 Jam Cohen music documentary on the band Fugazi, Instrument. So why are we talking about Instrument today? I think it was a spark of love between us uh, online where Fugazi came up somewhere and maybe it had to do with in on in on the kill taker or some maybe a ranking something like that uh but i think we we locked eyes from across the digital uh wasteland and said do you love fugazi too oh no and that means something uh and then we thought how can we get away with talking about fugazi on a platform uh and we found a way yeah so i guess a good way to start this conversation is how did you first hear of fugazi uh, I have an older brother, and he is responsible for a variety of influences, music being one of them. He had a CD collection in the 90s when I was like 13, and he was in college. So, uh, you know, I would go to his house, his apartment, and just look at his CD collection. And, you know, big, uh, you know, big early grunge guy. Um, but was really always talking about the challenge of finding underground music. Um, and he would talk about a lot of bands that he loved, but then there was always Fugazi. And there was a ethos-driven reason that was also included uh, with his fandom of that band that he would, you know, I remember him talking about early on and some of it's the uh, economic institutions that they kind of put in place. If, you know, folks don't know, they were big proponents of selling their own tickets uh, in very um, low cost ways. I think most shows were $5 for years, maybe 10 at tops, but they were very committed to um, keeping shows cheap and affordable, keeping their records cheap and affordable uh, so that was something he kind of pushed, uh, pushed along with it. He was like, not only is this band great, but they mean and stand for things and back them all the way up. Uh, so that was the first person to be like, you should be listening to um, this band. And they kind of came up in this pre-internet era. So a lot of people found out about them through word of mouth, like you did from your brother. I don't remember where I first heard of them, but I remember... I had like a classmate who knew I had the first Blink-182 record. And he was like, hey, um, I'll trade you an album for like a week or two if you let me borrow the Blink-182 album. And he had Fugazi's Red Medicine. And for some reason, I was like, Fugazi, they're, like, they're a big deal, right? So I'm going to borrow that. And obviously, I got the better end of the deal. <laughs> well, both ends of that deal have their moments, right? Uh, and, and have their merits. But yeah, I, I and that's funny you mentioned Red Medicine because that's the very first one I also um, picked up. And that was like 95. So I was 14 or 15 or something like that. Um, uh, yeah, but that that's cool that it landed in a swap. And it does seem like a band that's kind of hard to find because they were also really um, anti-advertising. And like there's no official merchandise for this band that exists anything you see out there is is a bootleg um and unauthorized and things like that so like though all those traditional methods of of creating uh awareness they shunned or at least didn't participate in right no music videos um no ra no radio singles <laughs> exactly no singles but no music video especially for the time he is a really big deal. Like I, I, you know, I can't, you know, that's how I found out about a ton of bands, even if their video played only at like two 30 AM, you know, um, something like that. I, I just, that was another gateway to find music back then. Yeah. Like MTV is 120 minutes, right? Stuff right. like that. Exactly. 
So I don't think it was like something that like showed up in many theaters. So did you watch it on VHS or did you get the DVD in 2001? No, I had a VHS copy of it and I'm sure I bought it blind. I feel like this came out, you know, just before the argument. Um, and so it was in that dry period between albums because I because once I got hooked, you know, I was starting to buy their albums as they would come out. So like I remember when End Hits came out and um, and then I think this came out in between End Hits and The Argument. And yeah, I just I just grabbed the VHS, whatever it was. I want I wanted it. I think my roommate in college had it. So he had the DVD and I remember watching it and I don't know. What were your first impressions of instruments? Um, you know, it's a quieter, less intrusive experience. It's, it's not a, it's not a real straight ahead documentary. You know, it's not like, um, it doesn't walk you through their history quite as cleanly as some people might hope. Um, and you, you know which which I may be kind of um, underwhelming. Maybe would some some people might walk away from it with that. I think I found it to be upon repeat viewings, like a little bit of a like answers to to questions that are kind of laid out in their discography and, and, and uh, you know, small moments on records you can kind of almost hear happening in this documentary, either seeds of things. Um, other songs became meant more to me after watching the documentary. Like there's a live performance of shut the door, um, which is a song, I, I guess, I mean, I liked, but that live performance and the way they kind of, prey on the stage and they're the way that they're clearly communicating with each other on a level that um does it involve words uh and nonverbal communication like i i i just started to see the picture of them it became richer and richer there's one moment in particular they're recording in a house and um it's actually the end of a song in uh on off red medicine i think it's by you and they kind of go crazy at the end of it and it's like all this you know really wild you know violent guitar and at the end i hear this person like going ah, 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 like making this kind of yell and i always wondered listening to it like what the hell is that what are they doing like what is that and then in this movie you literally see gee like his string is broken during the process of recording this and he's like ah He's like holding up his string, his guitar. And it was just like, oh my gosh, this random vocalization moment off this record is now, I can see it visually happening via this documentary. And if you've ever obsessed with a record to the point where you're, you know, uh, uh, memorized <laughs> random vocalizations at the end of jams, like it, it was like, um, I just felt like it was uh, like a lexicon, like like a, like the Rosetta Stone or something. Like all of a sudden, I was translating all this stuff because of this documentary. Oh, that's so cool! I'll admit. So I watched it today. I remember watching it in college, and I think I made the realization that maybe I never finished it in college. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, it's kind of a slow-moving documentary. It doesn't really, as you said, work as a history of the band or as a, you know, here's us playing three songs in this city and then here's some backstage hijinks and then here's us playing three songs. You know, it's very kind of all over the place as far as, like, a standard documentary would be. Yeah, and if you're a film, you know, film buffs or whatever, it's very experiential. I would say that, you know... There are moments that they kind of lay out, like there's some a famous DC moment, and you know where they're they're playing out front of the Capitol, and you know a variety of these little things like that. Um, but in some ways, it's also kind of meandering, and 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 yeah, them rolling up to a show, goofing on the piano a little bit, you know, it, it, not a lot happening, you know, necessarily in some of the more traditional music doc sense, you know. Right. You're not seeing like Sonic Youth hanging out with them backstage or, you know, different things that you would expect in a documentary. Part of it is because, like you said, you know, they 
would tour in like smaller venues, you know, so they could charge lower prices for their fans. So they didn't have like the kind of typical backstage experience as you would at, you know, like if you were playing, you know, the, the, the Viper room in LA or first Avenue in Minneapolis, like they weren't playing these sort of venues. So you didn't have that sort of, you know, like, Oh, you know, Iggy pops backstage. Right. Right. No, I don't think that they're catering to that style of um, invent or engage, you know, that's not what they're aiming for. And they've, yeah, they're purposefully maneuvering themselves, I think, away from things like that. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if they rarely played L.A. They're probably playing around L.A. And they're saying, where are the kids at? Like, we want to get closer uh, closer to them. Because that's all, another aspect, too, right? Accessibility. Right. Um, I don't know if they've played many bar shows. You know, I'm sure there's aficionados out there that can correct me on that. But I think the large share that their their goal is all ages shows, if not mm-hmm. um, their accomplishment is pure, you know, all, all ages shows. I'm not, I can't speak to that 100%, but I, I think that's something they strive for. Yeah, I believe that's correct. They wanted to really take their music and make it accessible to everyone. I unfortunately never got to see them live. I don't know if you were ever able to see them. I was. And uh, I saw them 1999. I saw right around this period. Uh, the argument was not out. And Hits was out. It was that tour. And I had a band at the time, too. And we were playing a gig the same night in this little little town called Wilsonville in Oregon. And let me tell you, uh, it was not a very good show. Uh, we weren't playing big halls uh, at, at 17 or 18. <laughs> and um, I had tickets to Fugazi. And like I like I think I think I maneuvered our band to play earlier in the set so I could leave because Wilsonville to Portland was like 25 minutes. And I was like, listen, it's like we really gotta open or play second because I gotta jam. I'm going to see Fugazi. And so we played. The band was like, all right, bye, leave. You know, that's so why I left with a friend of mine, uh, Jen, and we 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 booked it all the way to Portland. You know, my memory of the event, it varies between fantasy and reality now, too, because like I was like, dude, I like retell it. It's like they played like three and a half hours. It was amazing, you know, amazing, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. They did play a very long time. But in uh, in the aftermath of, of them becoming more of an internet present band, they've released almost every live show with at least a set list, if not a recording. And there is both for the for this Portland, Oregon show that I was at. And it was not three and a half hours, but it was very long. It was it was a very lengthy set. Um, it was a good set. I remember feeling like they played stuff from all over their history. Uh, and I deeply, deeply regret that they didn't tour more and or um, you know, or that I missed something from the argument. Um, but I was pretty on it when the argument came out. And I, I, I just don't think they traveled close enough to me that I that I would have been aware. But it was really a wonderful experience. And I, I'm glad I'm glad I got it. Yeah, and I think that's part of the reason that the instrument at first was very disappointing to like me and my friend who are watching it is because we never got to see them live and there's teases of how great they are live in this documentary, but it's not like a focus. Yeah, it's not, right? And and I do think now for people in 2022, if they want to check out some live Fugazi experiences, I bet I bet there's scads on YouTube. They have lots of like free or pay what you want live recordings. Like you can kind of get it, get in on, on that, on that level. Um, but almost like the, 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 the experience of it and the way that they uh, perform live, it does have something special to it. And part of one of the wonderful things about the documentary too, is they talk about their mythos a little bit, the things that get mythologized about them that they do or don't do, which is a very, one of the funniest parts of the documentary is when they're kind of sitting around talking about that people think they're monks or whatever. Um, And they haven't really ever said yes or no about a bunch of stuff. But one of them is that they never write set lists, right? They are letting each other lead the dance, so to speak. And somebody will start something on the guitar and then people follow and they're just that rehearsed and that tight and that, you know, that locked in that they don't have to talk about it and they just do it, which I I honestly, it's one of the, you know, people can correct me if they want, but it's almost one of those things. I don't want to be 
I don't want to be corrected. Part of the part of my uh, um, part of the joy of this band is kind of just going with the flow of some of that mythology and just enjoying it. Right. Though I do think that I don't know if it's Jem Cohen's like main point, but it, part of the documentary is about like humanizing them. Right. It's about showing that Ian McKay actually laughs. Because I think the mythology kind of starts to distort, <laughs> and you just think that he's like the most miserable person to meet at a party, right? Right. Super stoic. Uh, if you made a joke, he, he would like flatly like dismantle it at a pragmatic level or something, right? I totally. I think that's why those softer songs too. Like he has a, a lovely piano ballad that he's either been working on or he makes up on the spot or whatever. But it it's a really good example of 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 Jem Cohen humanizing him in particular in that because it's such a soft moment. And especially for folks who don't remember at that point, you know, being the guy from minor threat and just stepping down to Fugazi in some people's eyes, some punk's eyes, purists eyes as if Fugazi was like prog rock comparatively um, uh, to, to minor threat. So it was like, there's also that adds to that meat that mythology of like who is it? What's he doing now? What's he up to? Like this used to, you know, used to be so straight edge punk. You know, um, the anger, the 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 fury, the furious nature of the music that he made, and then it took this big shift. So I, I think that that is one of the goals of that movie. And. Do you agree that like it starts very serious but gets much funnier as you hit the second half? Like I feel like I saw a lot more like joy and laughter in the second half of the documentary. Yeah, and I, I think I, I totally I do agree. I don't think these guys are um, not a little serious. Like I do think they take what they're doing seriously. They might be a little bit of serious natured, uh, you know. When they they might be the kind of guys on the weekend that say, "Yeah, I went." grabbed a new Proust book and I'm, I'm making my way through that. And that was my weekend. Like that might be exactly who they are too. Right. It's just, um, they're also capable of, of this, you know, uh, intricately written punk rock that can just flip your mind upside down. Right. And, and both of those things are maybe hard to, uh, juxtapose next to each other. You're like, wait a minute, you know, how, how do both these things work in the same space? And and I think that is one of the accomplishments of that, right? Is is kind of slowly saying, hey, look, they're pretty regular. You know, they just have some standards or they just have some goals and they're sticking to them. Right. Like, you know, they're known for, you know, do it yourself, right? They run their own label, um, you know, no advertising, they don't make merch, but I think that's mostly like a practical reason. Like they didn't want to have to like bus around a if someone to run the merch table too. Sure. Even though I just remember in the '90s, a bunch of people wearing a shirt that says "This is not a Fugazi T-shirt," and it literally, exactly. literally was not a Fugazi T-shirt, not sanctioned by the band. Exactly. I, I I've even seen um my brother has a has a coffee mug that says that now you know. Uh, and I, if that's the only merchandise that's out there, I would love it if that's it, right? We could just maintain that one bootlegged um, property. That would be okay. Right. But yeah, there's definitely a serious side, right? Like, you know, they interrupt shows to stop people from fighting. Yes. Yes. There's the, uh, there's the famous you ice cream eating motherfuckers tangent <laughs> during one of their shows. Yeah. And, and you know... It's one thing to like, you know, read about that kind of stuff. And maybe you would read stuff about that in like Maximum Rock and Roll or Punk Planet or, or one of those magazines that were out then. Uh, and then it's another one to see it like confirmed via video. And I even saw there was an interaction at the Portland show where I think someone threw gum at him and he had it on the end of his pick and was like, here's that gum. Like just, just like totally flat killing, and they kick some people out for being too aggressive, and uh, and it's just like man, like they're really committed to that kind of stuff. Proof, you know, they're walking the walk or whatever. Well, that's a cliche, but I, I really felt that way. And as a musician, I think you know a lot of bands who are famous for screwing around, 
right? Like the Rolling Stones or the Who, the destroying um, hotel rooms and throwing stuff out the window and doing drugs and, you know, being wild. Like that's a side of rock and roll that is very well known and advertised in, you know, another mythological lane you can go down. And to me as a musician, wanting to like hit, hit the next level, it was really interesting to see a band say, well, no, we have a rehearsal schedule and we rehearse Monday through Friday. It's nine to seven. And, you know, and they, they were like, if we're going to go on tour, we're going to rehearse for six weeks beforehand. And we want to get to a certain point where we don't have to be thinking anymore. Uh, and that's, no, that's our plan. And I, and the band I was in at the time, I remember taking parts of these and being like, we need to be practicing four nights a week. Okay. They're going to start. We're not going to no beer until after, you know, no, no, like trying to like right. instill this standard and look at the product after it and say, what did we get by actually committing to those kinds of things? And I, I, you know, we didn't stick to it. But I remember the show we played after a summer of, you know, playing, practicing four nights a week. And we played a show to some friends who were in another band who hadn't seen us in a while. And they were like, what happened? You guys are really tight. I was like, I told you. And I was like, going there. I was like, I told you guys, look how tight we are. Everyone notices, you know? So I, it, it, it is a helpful, like, it's another example of what kind of band you could have. Right. And not to say that the stones didn't practice or, you know, I, you know, nothing like that, but you can do things in a different way that uh, can be a part of some similar scenes and groups that also, it doesn't mean you have to be fall down drunk to play punk music or something like that. Right. And so I'm going to, I want to say this, but not as a slight to him, but it seems like he is very good at understanding how to be a professional like how to be an adult doing things for a living. You know, so like you said with the practices, right? Like I saw him speak at my alma mater like 10 years ago. He was just there to do a speaking engagement for some club. And, you know, he, he said, yeah, we we practice 40 hours a week when we're doing Fugazi. And until we're ready to all get together and do that again, there will be no new Fugazi. Like we're not going to just show up to do some reunion show for money. Like when we're doing Fugazi, it's a full-time job for us and we eat together and we do everything together because we enjoy each other and we're friends. But like when we're in Fugazi mode, like it's like, it's a serious business for us. Yeah. (laughs) I think, you know, and maybe that's like, for me, that matches the artist's dream in some ways. Like, Every artistic experience I've had that has gotten close to that kind of um, love, respect, a lot of time spent, you know, um, bonding over not just the art, but eating, sharing space, whatever. If that has happened, I consider all of those moments some of the best artistic experiences of my life, whether it's been theater or a band, like, you know, any of those kinds of things when you get to that lived in moment and y'all care about the work, uh, you transcend a little bit. So I get it. I get why he's, he's hardlined and he's one of the people I've learned it from. There's always like these new stories that come out to show like, he is like a master archivist. Like, I think they just released in like some discord box set, like a seven inch of like music he recorded when he was like 16 years old. Sure. Yes. Like preteen idols. And I think like to get the recording done, he had to write write a letter to like Brian Baker's mom or something like that. And he still has like somehow he got the letter back. Yeah, I'm sure he's got the contact info for for Brian on a nice roll Brian's mom on a nice Rolodex or something. He's he and then he's probably moved that over to a spreadsheet. He's uh, he he seems thorough, right? And and I'm sure some people would consider that a little OCD or or you know there's some sort of keeping things in order, you know, really trying to tightly control. I'm sure some people view it as that, uh, but it seems like that's where he's most comfortable. Right. But that's how also you, you have what 500 Fugazi shows that you can get digitally from discord. If you want to hear them live. Yeah. Right. No, exactly. And I think, you know, it'd be one thing too, to say, well, I saved all this to make a bunch of money. 
but their stuff is still really cheap and or some of that is free, you know, um, or pay what you want. I, 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 and, and, you know, the idea that, y- you know, you're trying to get your stuff out there and make it available for, you know, I mean, I'm sure they're, they're aiming to make a profit, but they're not aiming to maximize profit. And I think that that is a big difference. And I remember thinking about other problems in, in the world. And I think about, I remember having this um, thought around healthcare, you know, or prescription costs or something. And it's like, you know, I had this thought, I was like, you could still make so many millions of dollars if you, if you just didn't charge as much, you'd still be rich. You know, I, I and, and I'm not saying that Fugazi are sitting on, you know, like, like Scrooge McDuck on, uh, with their big vault of money, but there's just so many moments in life where you could say, I can make enough to get by and I, and I, and I, and still get what I want out of the, out of this, you know, exchange. Right. Yeah. And that's why I think he's a good businessman. And like, that's why, and that's why I'm, I'm like trying not to say it as like, he's awful in any way. Like he's just like, He's just really thought this stuff through. Yeah, I, I think they work really hard to keep the bottom line down. Um, I, you know, he's a proven uh, economist in in, the, in that way to me. And if people don't know, you know, Ian, uh, the guitar player for this band, you know, he's one of the owners of Discord Records, and they have notoriously kept their prices uh, cheap over the years. And the back of their records too, you can see. Them advertise, you can get this record postage paid for X amount of dollars directly from Discord. It'll say that on the back. And that's one way to identify when the records came out because early records will say like $7, right? And then later it gets up to about 12 or 13. And now it's, you know, 17, 20, whatever, whatever their their minimum amount with postage paid is. Um, but that's kind of like, it's, it's heavily advertised. The transparency feels thorough. Uh, and usually whatever price that's on the back of that record is cheaper than you ordering a record from a lot of other bands or record stores or whatever. And that's the truth. I bought a lot of records for 25 plus years. And anytime I, I've seen a price, if it's just come out, I'd be like, man, it seems like they're just giving this away at cost. It really, it really is interesting. It'd be really interesting to, you know, I would love to hear him talk more about the economy of the label and how they, how they make that label make money or not. Yeah, I'm wondering if it's kind of like how a couple other indie labels that I know of merge and like Asian Man Records run, where it's just like bare bones staff. Like I think at Asian Man, it is only Mike Park who runs Asian Man Records. And I think I read an interview with Mac from Super Chunk, and I think he said that we're still in the same office in Chapel Hill. It's the same three people who run Merge Records. I assume him and Laura are part of those three uh, people. Sure. But, you know, even with Arcade Fire and Spoon, it wasn't like, hey, let's get a brand new office. Let's expand operations. It was just like, nope, this is going to be the three of us. And I'm sure Discord is probably like Ian and uh, a skeleton crew of people that he's had for like 20 years. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I, I, I do. I do. So, yeah, it's interesting to see. And, what, you know, one of the things as I get older and because you know, I'm 20 years, 25 years into being a fan, you know, what will people think in another 20 years? You know, I, I, I would be interested in that. I wouldn't mind if another documentary came out, you know, from them later down the line to just show, like, if they do ever get into a position where they can commit to 40 hours a week uh, and come back around, because that is pretty high on my list, you know, of bands that I wish I could see again and or ever, like, you know, um, or that would tour again. You know, they're pretty high on my list. Part, part of the reason I'd like to see them do it again is just to see how they navigate the world now. Um, and, you know, how does a band committed to all the things they were committed to negotiate the world of 2022 and the Internet? And, you know, because they just weren't a part of it in that same way. And maybe they would maybe they would completely, you know, straddle, navigate, sidestep around all these kind of like uh, capitalist pitfalls that are in place because of social media and, and just the way we process things. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm always scared to death. They're about to be a TikTok viral dance or something and, and have, have some moment like that. But I, anyway, I, I just, I really, I'd be really curious to see how they, how they, how they work in the world now. Yeah. Cause like a 10, $15 show doesn't exist anymore. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and I don't, I don't bring any of this up to be like, I think artists should be paid less. Uh, I think mostly artists should get more of their own money. Um, but like, yeah, what do they do? I mean, I, 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 I'd be really fascinating to, to see what they roll out as the standard of cost to see Fugazi and how to get involved in that. Cause I think even the most, you know, altruistic bands, you know, they've got merch, they've got fees. They're in a fee structure of wherever, you know, they're trying to issue their tickets, you know, or what, you know, it's just, I don't know. I'd be fascinated to see how they, how they, and that would be a great documentary in itself, right? It's just film, you know, Fugazi trying to renegotiate with this nightmare planet since they left. Yeah. How are they going to deal with uh, t- ticket resellers? I'm sure that scalping yeah. tickets is a lot worse now than it was back in, you know, 1995. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, 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 Gosh, that's such a great point. Because even direct sellers of stuff, like I buy a lot of records on pre-order or or flash sale kind of stuff that are trying to get nice things into the hands of the people that want it the most. And they are inundated with bots and or scalpers and people who are just trying to make money off of people's love of things. And they would not be, there's no way they wouldn't be as susceptible to that. If they announced a tour they're like, all of our tickets are going on sale and they're all, let's just say $15 for the sake of argument. And I mean, there's no way that, that those aren't going to get attacked. <laughs> it will be, uh, it will, it will, it will happen in full force. I think that's when, that's when that mythologized version of Ian comes out. Like I'm going to end a ticket reselling for Fugazi shows. And that's where the, that's where the kind, quiet Ian goes away. Yeah, he's kind of like dad. You know, if you ever had a quiet dad and then dad got mad and you're like, oh, no. Like, this is really bad because dad's mad. Like, everybody, we really need to stop. <laughs> yeah, I feel like people worship him like he's the older sibling. That's really cool that you don't want to disappoint. Yeah, disappointment's the right word, right? I, I would hate it if, if he was, like, looking at my business plan and he was like, well, I'm kind of disappointed in how much you're exploiting your audience. And I would be like, oh, shoot. Oh, crushing. Yeah, that would be devastating. Yeah, I don't think I could handle that. I I would be really hurt. I would be crushed. So they're not active on social media, but I do see them pop up on like different music blogs, music sites every now and then. And I know it's not intentional because he doesn't operate this way, but I feel like maybe it's just because he's a genuinely like a pretty normal person that it seems to be working out for him when people find him um, popping up whenever he does. Like there was a juggalo march in Washington, DC, I want to say like seven or eight years ago. And uh, you know, he lives in DC. So he just like biked up to like some hill so he could just watch it. Cause he thought it would be very entertaining. And you know, someone took pictures of him and it's not like, you know, like national Enquirer <laughs> pictures. Like they're very clean pictures of him just like sitting up on top of a hill and enjoying the juggalo march from afar and it seems like you know whenever he does pop up it's it's never for like a bad reason yeah i yeah i think he he does kind of he, he's not so put away that he, you can't have a conversation with him i think i just had read about a friend of mine uh sent him a quick email almost like hey i'm doing a quick anniversary of one of the fugazi records just do you mind telling me about steady diet of nothing for a minute? It's like, yeah, sure. You know, you go, what do you got? Five questions? Fine. You know? So nothing like so, um, he's like sequestered or, you know, in hidden away. Uh, he does kind of crop up here and there. I, I'm, I'd be very interested. Like I've never heard of him speaking, you know, like you've mentioned on your college campus. I would, I would definitely, if I heard of that happening, I would try and do that. I saw the evens once. Um, which is one of his bands after Fugazi. And, and I found that to be, you know, a fun time. Didn't quite scratch the itch fully, but it was, it was, it was great to see him out there. Have you seen the uh, Foo Fighters Sonic Highways documentary? No, I never have. Um, so in one of the episodes, they recorded Inner Ear. And so, of course, Dave knows Ian. So Ian shows up and he's just hanging out in the studio um, telling stories. I think he's talking about how he grew up on like Ted Nugent. That's great. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, it's fun. He's not actually like, he doesn't play any music with them, but he's, you know, he just pops in to hang out. And like, you can tell like Dave and like 
most of the guys are like super excited that Ian McKay is in their presence. Yeah, sure, sure. But he did a bunch of press around uh, when the documentary came out. Um, he did a bunch of press and he had like some letter Dave Grohl wrote him when Dave was 16 asking for his advice and to only call between 10 a.m. and 10 p.m. so his parents wouldn't get mad. But he like actually had the letter. Archivist, just like he said. I, I, I totally i am not surprised at all. But like in 2001, if you told me that he would be on some H- HBO docuseries on the Foo Fighters going across the country recording in all these famous studios, I'd be like, that's not what Ian McKay does. Sure. Sure. Well, and I think, you know, it becomes even more of a archival document because I think inner ear is gone. I, at least in the in the spot that it was, I think that they closed down. Yeah, last year. Yeah. Which really like set me back. Like I, I was like, man, that's really a spot. You know, it'd be like if Steve Albini, you know, hung it up. I don't know. It's just a spot where more often than not, I would be like, man, I really like this record. And I turn it over and I'd be like, oh, it's Dawn. It's Dawn at Inner Ear, you know, and I would be like, oh, this is a commonality here between yeah. awesome and inner ear that I, I I'm starting to memorize, right. The common denominator. Yeah. I think um, a couple of the guys in the band um, have, you know, you know, punk emo ba- backgrounds. So they were looking at like the different albums that were recorded in inner ear. And they're like, man, this really reminds me of like my wall in high school. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, even the dismemberment plan, which is you know kind of post Fugazi, they did a lot of recording there as well. Yeah, but still a DC band, right? I mean, kind of part yeah. of that. Yeah, that third third wave out of there, fourth wave maybe. I don't know. Yeah, but you know, to kind of go along with that humanization of of Ian McKay, it's just like oh, he's popping up in this HBO documentary. You know, kind of like he, I think he's on one of the uh, Sonic Youth Geffen albums. Like he plays a little bit of guitar on, I think, Experience oh, Set. You know, and it's like, well, it's like, oh, he he would dare be on a major label album, but it's not a Fugazi album, obviously. But you know, it's sure. like there's this yeah. weird sort of like distortion of like us trying to like think for him, or put him in an impossible box, right? That that is, you know, uh, makes it untenable for him to like like navigate his life. What's he supposed to do? Say no if he's got a relationship with Dave Grohl and he wants him to stop by. Like, you know, it's just not reasonable. <laughs> like, right. the man's earned the right to, to live his life. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I think in the uh, in Sonic Highways, I think there's some footage of him skateboarding as a high school kid with, like, Henry Rollins. And, you know, part of him is like, Henry Rollins, total sellout. Well, and you're, you're, you're heading towards a good point, right? Which is the kind of, I don't know if this is as prevalent now, because the idea of selling out is almost the goal now. And... Um, being a sellout or not, and there was a little bit of a gotcha uh, energy around punk rock people or when people started to make money, it was like, ha, ha, gotcha. Now you sold out. We got you, motherfucker. Like, like you know, you, you're, now you're doing something that was you said you would never do. And we got you. You know, I think that that was a more prevalent hunt that people were on sometimes with these people that got put up on these pedestals, right? Yeah, I just read this interview. Um, it was with, and obviously it was a while ago cause since Elliot Smith has passed, but it was some interview where someone was like, um, they were talking to him about his Oscars performance. And he was like, yeah, it's weird. Like all these people come up, came up to me, you know, like fans afterwards were like, like, like I can't believe you had to like hold Celine Dion's hand. Like, you know, at the end of all their performances. And he was like, why? She's a nice person. Yeah. Like, why I, should I be I, mad that I had to hold her hand? That just got kind of regurgitated, that that quote or something. I just saw that on social media a couple of days ago. And uh, it feels like such a young, immature thing to focus on. But, man, it was a big deal in the 90s if you were, like, not being true somehow um, and selling out or, yeah. You know, participating in 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 um, events or 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 cert, you know running in circles that were deemed you know not worthy, but those people could be just as possibly nice. 
So I, I, I'm I'm glad that's making the rounds again. As I think as an older, you know, as I've gotten older too, I used to be such a snot about things that I didn't think met the Fugazi standard of excellence as far as like being a combo of ethos and, and quality and being like, oh, these people are out to make money, uh, you know, or they're interested in also having a career that pays their bills or what I was like, I was like what a you know, what a stab in the back. <laughs> like, like, you know, I don't know. You just really got to measure those things for yourself as an individual as you get older. Um, and I like nice things. I want to live with a certain level of comfort. And if my art ever paid for that, I guess I would feel lucky. And if I did it in a way that made me still feel like I was um, being good to the people who I work with and good to the people around me, I would, I would probably sleep soundly. Right. And, you know, Ian's not going to cut people out of his life just because they have commercial success. Yeah. I, yeah. And it's, it's just interesting in the last 30 years how the idea of commercial success and what that means to a band or a musician has turned, uh, it's turned itself around a few different ways. So, again, if they want to make a sequel to this, document Fugazi trying to renegotiate how to be that band in this landscape. I'd be very fascinated to watch that. Uh, if anyone could handle re renegotiating that landscape, I feel like it's him. Yeah, it would be interesting to watch and, and you know, watch them chew on it. I don't know, because they seem thoughtful about it too. I think there would, might be a moment where they're like, well, we're going to have to do it this way and that is not the way I want to do it. And that sucks a little bit, but I'll have more control over this over here. You know, and that means more. You know, I don't know. I'm kind of making up these hypotheticals, right? But I think we all make our calculations of what we're interested in giving up and letting go of versus the things that are a no-go. I won't do that, you know, um, whether it's as an artist or as a professional or whatever, right? Yeah, I think sometimes we confuse Morrissey's asshole-ish over veganism with Ian MacKay's just genuine, genuine, uh, genuine um, ethos. I think he walks life judgment free. I don't think he's taking shots at many, you know, who are choosing a different way of doing business. But I think if you asked him, he'd say, that's great for them, but it's not what I want. Right. Which I think is totally fair. Right? It's pretty, yeah, it's pretty, that's pretty fair. You live your life how you want. I'm just not going to do it that way. Yeah. And I think he understands not everyone can do it the Fugazi way. Like if everyone could have the same amount of success and be able to live, you know, I, I don't want to say like a, a rich life, but, you know, he's found that balance of how to get by. Sure. Right. Yeah. At his comfort level, whatever that is. Um, you know, if everyone could do it, I'm sure more people will do it that way. I think there's many, many artists out there who are probably operating in a similar methodology or mode and you're right that the the key ingredient though too to making that actually successful is people have to be interested in what you're doing and you know correspond or or relate or participate in the process of your art you know or, uh, you know and and people people either will or they won't and and you can operate in all the good faith elements you want and if nobody's coming to the table and interested in it then you know, it is what it is. It helps to be, you know, a music legend. Yeah, his jumping off point, and I, you know, uh, and I think a lot of the the things that happen in Minor Threat are things he used to establish what he was going to do next time. You know, I think that there are moments like that that you know our mistakes shape our decision making. Right. Where you do something, you go, I'm never doing that again. <laughs> and, and whatever the next thing that presents yourself, that's kind of like it. You know, you you make sure your contract is a certain way or you make sure the venue will be doing something the way you want it or you will not be there. You know, you can put in all those clauses in the world and you learn from all of those things to be able to keep creating the way you want to create. Right. So it's going to ask, what's your relationship to the soundtrack itself? Did you listen to this much? No. Because I didn't, I didn't realize this. I didn't realize this really existed until like two thousand one. So I knew about end hits, and I knew the argument was coming out. And then you know, my buddy just happened to be like, "Oh, I picked up instrument. You want to watch it?" 
And so I kind of experienced the soundtrack kind of like, well, there's a soundtrack to this too. Cool. Like, let me put it on. But I'd already heard like end hits. So I was like, oh, these are just demos. Sure. Sure. So was it, was it a Fugazi album then that you had in your rotation or did you kind of leave it to the side? I think I like checked it out once and just kind of left it to the side. Gotcha. I, um, for whatever reason, I have a habit of listening to music as I sleep. And this record was one of the early ones that I would kind of put on when I was going to sleep. And I would put on side A or side B on my record player. And the record player I had at the time would do an auto pickup. So at the end, the side A, if, if it would get to the end, it would just pick itself up and then the needle would would you know, it would all turn itself off. So it was this great way to do it. I could, you know, put this on. And if I fell asleep in that first 25 minutes, you know, I, it was, it was all wrapped up. And um, so I listened to this a lot because of that. And it has kind of a more of a low key nature. And you're right. Like some of them are definite demos or they are just mid tempo, four track, eight track versions of some of the songs that grew to become bigger, louder songs later. So it has this kind of uh, quieter um, vibe to it overall. Uh, and then there is the, um, so the arpeggiator demo, which is that, mm -hmm. which is that song, off, which is that song off end hits. That's the, it's kind of scaled. It's kind of guitar scale work and things like that. And I played it so much that the record has a skip. And so whenever it gets to this part in the in that scale, it goes like it just loops itself. So I had to stop listening to it as I would go to sleep because the record would never stop. I would wake up in the middle of the night and it would just be like looped, locked on that skip, that skipped track. But I I find my I found my way to this record a lot. And part of it's the desperation of knowing there's no more Fugazi music coming. I would be like, oh, what do I want to listen to? I want a Fugazi, but I, and I'd be like, you know, let me let me listen to the instrument soundtrack because I, I don't really have anything left that I haven't abused, you know, the dirt. And so I found myself kind of listening to it and then like reading to it because it's mostly, you know, it's a lot of instrumental uh, and it uh, has has just more low key nature to it, and and so I've really grown, really grown to love it because of that. So, do you think that now that I'm appreciating the documentary more, that I might appreciate the soundtrack to it more? I think anybody who came at this hoping for like a Fugazi album, and maybe has you know in that space since it came out maybe become a different person in some ways should go back to it because I think it offers a lot of hidden gems and um, a different vibe. Like it's almost like, God, you, you know, fast forward to now, maybe Fugazi puts out a much quieter record than they did in, in the late, the late nineties and in early two thousands, you know, you could see them moving and you get, you get hints of it on end hits and and on on instrument these kind of low um these low quieter songs that are more bass driven i'm going to use the term dub a little bit like it's 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 sitting in this lower register kind of rumbling and there, it's a much more quiet uh controlled experience and you can feel like them goof, goofing around on those kinds of styles where there could be an album that's all much more lo-fi uh, quieter, restrained, intricate, but w without ever like really crescendoing to these kind of loud um, spots that they are very, very capable of rising to. Yeah, I think it's um, important to point out that they kind of curated the soundtrack. So Instrument is a Jemco and Fugazi like collaboration. Like it wasn't like he just filmed it and stuck a bunch of their music in it. And that was that, like they collaborated with him on the process. And I think, you know, it, the instrument soundtrack definitely is like a soundtrack. It's not like a Fugazi greatest hits. Yeah, that's a great point. And like, you know, there's not, there's nothing on it. There's nothing on the album that is like, if you watch this, uh, if you watch the, the doc and like, like we mentioned earlier, that live version is shut the door. 
There's a live version in the documentary of merchandise, like or blueprint, excuse me. Like none of that is on this album. Like there are not the live things that you saw in the doc that are now on this. That is not what this is. It's like they created and or from their archives brought out incidental uh, instrumental music to use in the in the creation of the fabric of this movie, which which is also one of the reasons I like it because it's it's more like they're trying to score this documentary, like like they're taking pieces of themselves and saying, oh, you know, because I, I fully think some of these are just pieces of jam sessions of them recording themselves religiously that they're like, you know what? I got this little instrumental piece we can throw right here. And for those people who pay attention to the Fugazi records, there's an instrumental track on, on, on almost every album. Like they, they like the instrumental world. um, And, you know, you can see them find, you know, I can see them finding their way to that. I would gladly take some sort of odd film from them that they sat down to score the entire thing. I would, I would, I would, I would love to find that. Yeah. And they tweak so much of their songs once it comes into band practice. You know, I think I read that they'll completely change the structure. They'll even change who's supposed to be singing on it. And that it's truly a collaborative process. It's not like, well, this Ian comes in, here's my song. And then Guy comes in, this is my song. It, you know, sometimes an Ian song becomes a Guy song. And sometimes a Guy song just becomes a band instrumental like you're talking about yeah it's fascinating that they allow themselves to completely dismantle and re you know reorganize a song that maybe in its initial structure would be like would be like the finest song by another band but i think that that's that bravery and that commitment to saying we believe in ourselves enough that we may dismantle this entire thing to get right back where we were before but we're we're going to take the time to do it Right. We're going to try every different version to make sure this is the right one. What do you think the historical impact of a documentary like this will be? Like, I saw that this is like kicking on Amazon Prime, maybe even like it just kind of sits there. Do you will this will this as a music doc in a soundtrack ever have a revival, you know, um, and have a, have a have another moment? Or do you think it's more like a a snapshot in time that people will either be interested in or not. That is an interesting question. And I didn't really pick up on this uh, until I, I guess read about it, but I guess when this came out, there was a lot of, there were a lot of comparisons to it, or there was a lot of comparisons with that and Radiohead's meeting people is easy. Where that is also kind of not your standard, like, here we're playing three songs in a city and here's some backstage stuff. And then here's us playing three more songs. And I think they do make a good pairing. And I think it helps that they're both like super influential, important bands, but I don't talk to a lot of Radiohead people who like watch meeting people's easy, like constantly. Yeah. That's an interesting comparison. It's the right time. Um, you're right. Tonally, like there's not a lot of joy in meeting people are easy. And it's funny if you look at them and you're paying attention to them and you listen to okay computer and you're like, these are, this is an album of a bunch of people who are changing. Like something's really changed here. And then if you watch that movie and then you pick up kid a, or you were picking up kid a, when it came out, you won't be too surprised (laughs) that they've landed in this dark nihilistic, uh, odd space. Right. And, but I don't know that people who like look, who are stepping back at Radiohead and going, Oh, I'm new to Radiohead. What should I grab onto? I, I don't think that they also be such a bottom of the, of the bucket um, artifact to pick up for both bands. And I just don't see a lot of people like uh, this isn't the Testament to Fugazi that, you know, people would be able to pick up. Um, it made me, when I rewatched it, uh, it made me think about, a lot about the um, the Beatles doc that came out in the fall, uh, the reworking of Let It Be, I can't, Get Back. I get Back, yeah. And, and there are, it's funny, I was thinking about the things that it shares with it and the things that it doesn't share with it. And part of the things it shares, I think, is that in studio, you can see them working stuff out. You can see them, the camaraderie, you can see them, how they know each other. You can see how they relate 
But what it lacks truly is conflict in the same way, right? There is something inherently like the Beatles are at this moment, this apex, this transition where they're about to change in a big way and you can feel them heading these different directions. And then what's not there an instrument is any of that. Like these are people who are doing exactly what they want if they want to. And, and it's just, and I think in some ways that's why it will leave people or, or that's why people won't run to it. It's because the story there is really much more of like a, uh, uh, some of the lesser works or the more low key works of Kerouac or something. It's an experience. You're there from this point to this point and you get what, what that, you, you get all the pieces of that experience, but there isn't necessarily a something that's happening. Yeah, it's just, here's a glimpse of 10 years of Fugazi. Yeah. And things worked out pretty fine. <laughs> yeah, it, it's like watching a movie about a happy family. Uh, yeah, in some ways, right? In, in some ways, that like built a really cool house together or whatever. But but there's, a, there's almost um, a disengagement that happens because of how... Uh, how conflict free they are in, in how they work together. I think you see the things that they tackle and the topics that they tackle and, and, and things like that. But, you know, it's a lot to admire uh, as an artist, but if you're there for the drama of your music doc, there's not a lot of fireworks. Yeah. The biggest drama is I'm kicking some fans out because they're getting too rowdy. Exactly. Right. To hear Ian yell at some guy to apologize for spitting at someone else. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. So they have portraits of their fans, right? Video portraits of their fans at these different shows. That's part of the documentary. And because this is, you know, late 80s, early 90s, it's predominantly a white crowd. But um, I think near the end, there's an interview and it's uh, two women in the the um the hijabs and they were yeah. talking about how they respect like that he created his own label so he didn't have like all these different capitalistic pressures and it you know it, it was cool to see that even in you know i think they stopped filming this in 97 to see that sort of representation and like i, I it was surprising to me you know and i it was it was cool those sections are kind of a weird um, sequel to Heavy Metal Parking Lot, which if you if folks haven't seen Heavy Metal Parking Lot, this is probably on YouTube now or something like that. But it used to be a bootleg movie of um, that was made of, of people interviewing uh, concert goers at a variety of different venues. I think mostly it's a Judas Priest concert. And you know, back before we filmed every moment of our waking lives, you know, being on camera or being interviewed in this way or, or being filmed was a much more unique experience and so you also have all these people who are less conscious of being on camera talking about things saying whatever and and it's a great little documentary i swear it's not longer than 40 minutes and, it, and it's worth it's worth your time even skim, even skimming um but then this part is almost like because that's in the early mid 80s and there's a lots of the, the folks that they're filming later um, where it's another five, 10 years in the future. And you you get a little bit of, of how people have changed. You also get other people who are clearly misinformed or unconcerned about the misinformation they have about Fugazi, Ian, whatever that they're whatever they're talking about. And 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 that unabashed uh, confessional nature of them just talking about it, it it does add a really cool element to it. And um yeah, I'll just so I just throw it out there. If you haven't seen Heavy Metal Parking Lot, there is a great correlation between these two por- these two parts because of it. It's also sweet that there's a couple that got married over debating the lyrics of Margin Walker. <laughs> That's a sweet, sweet story. And now people are probably renewing their vows to 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 them because we're we're twenty odd years past their last album. That is a terrifying thing to think about. So let me ask you this. I always feel like there's two halves of Fugazi in, in, in as far as their, their career goes. There's the first half, which is, I think, a, a, a band, you know, doing that kind of uh, combination of punk, reggae, 
um, um, hardcore, hardcore thing. And then I think there is uh, everything from Red Medicine and on, which is much more post-punk, noisy, uh, avant-garde, even uh, adventure. And and so, let me, are you a are you a first half or a second half Fugazi person? I lean more towards the second half. Though I probably will listen to thirteen songs as much as I do the second half stuff. But like sometimes repeater and on the kill taker and steady die of nothing. Like I kind of sometimes have a trouble keeping track of what song is on which album. Sure. I have had my moments of both. I think I can safely say I'm a second half. Uh, Red Medicine was really the first album I ever had from them and it blew my mind. I didn't understand it at all for, I bet a year. I was like, I don't even understand. Like, what is happening? Like, I this is ugly, or it doesn't work, or why is this happening right now? Like, it just confounded me over and over. Uh, and then I think, you know, because I was at the age where, you know, once I liked them, their albums were coming out, and I could get the new one or whatever. So I think that last half kind of, I respond to it because of that. Um, but then, like, there was a point where the, the early catalog just completely overtook me. And I was like, in on the kill taker is the apex of, of, you know, this catchy emo punk rock moment. Like it's just shattering all of these, all of these concepts at once. I was like, it's like taking things. The pixies wish they had nailed it down better. And like, like totally, totally making all of those things work in, in, in a, in a, in a stronger way. Um, so yeah, I've, I've had moments of both, but I can, I can definitely say that, the second half is 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 what I, I reach for more, and that's also why I think this soundtrack it, it is a companion piece to folks who like that last half, be, because it has so many demos. Uh, but it also just feels like it belongs in that era more more than the the repeater in the Killtaker era. Yeah, and I I guess I never realized how fruitful of an era um, Red Medicine was for them. Because I feel like a lot of end hits comes from like stuff they didn't use on Red Medicine or things that were starting to kind of form during Red Red Medicine. Yeah, it's kind of like Crooked Rain, Crooked Rain, and Wowie Zowie. Because I know you're a Pavement fan too. Uh huh. Sure, sure. We can bring them in. No, no. I think that's a great point. It's like they leap. They they both bands kind of leap off that moment to jump to that next one. And I think that's the neat part about listening to Fugazi records all like in order is that you can almost hear them saying, well, that was kind of a good idea. What if we did it a little bit more? You can like feel them building on something. Um, and what makes their record so perennial is that they aren't, they aren't the same. They are different than the one that came before it and the one after it. So they have a, they have a, a band learning and changing. You could feel them. The only one that throws me off is Steady Die to Nothing. I, I, I always think that that's the record that came out after 13 songs, and it is not. And, and it, you know, the fact that it's after Repeater, it feels like a step backwards uh, a little bit. That's the only moment that I'm like, what? Steady Diet's like the only one that I don't ever quite resonate with as much as the others. But there was a really neat article um, that I mentioned a little bit earlier about Steady Died to Nothing, about what their goals were with that record. And and, um, and and so it kind of put it in a more contextual space. And I, I, I got to understand it a little bit better. But that's their, their catalog's fascinating because of that. Yeah. And I, you know, and I appreciate that they're one of those bands that we'll keep working on a song until it's ready. So with, with the argument, I believe they released furniture as a single and that song's like 10 plus years old, but they just never got it right. Yeah. Yeah. And the B side to that single has two totally barn burner tracks that are, that are two of my favorite songs of theirs. And that single, that single we used to use is a house that, that me and three other guys lived at with a variety of our partners that we were with or not at the time. So it was like a, I mean, when I bring that up to say it was on average of four to eight people who lived in this house and in the mornings on the weekends, furniture was the single to kind of wake the house up, to let everybody know 
that the the house is now open and up you know open for business like we're going to make breakfast life is going to continue sleeping is over and you would put furniture on uh that would be the first the first part of it and then someone will flip it to the b side and then it was everyone's awake you know whatever we're whatever we're up to at 2021 20, you know we're we're ready to go and so i have a lot of special memories of that single because of that yeah, and you can tell how much archive stuff they have when they have song titles like Joe Number Five. Yeah, which uh, for all the instrumental nerds out there and all all the Joe Lolly nerds, you know, the, he writes about one song per record, and you know you can track those. Like Joe Number One, I think is off their first single. You know, like you can track all this stuff if you're if you're kind of cl- you know clued into to their their naming conventions and things like that. So. Well, thank you, David, for coming back on the podcast. It's uh, I'm such a pleasure to be here, Ryan. I I love talking to you about uh, anything, but I, I'm, the fact that we could get going on Fugazi is is a is a real uh, a, a passion of mine, and I'm glad we could share that. Yeah, I was really excited that we connected on this. Like, I had kind of an idea that you know I think we listen to a lot of the same music. I think we've made jokes about like Jawbreaker and Pavement and stuff. So yeah. I was like. Maybe he likes Fugazi, but to, to see proof was very exciting for me, and I'm glad that we get to talk about this. Fugazi's kind of like a secret handshake. It's like if I feel like somebody really gets Fugazi, I'm like, oh, like I can solve the Rubik's Cube of you a little bit. Like I know we kind of care about some similar things probably. <laughs> you know, And that's right. not – I mean that's a blanket generalization, and I, I apologize if anyone feels cornered or, 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 or pegged by that. But it just feels like you know if someone's like – you know. Yeah, you ever heard? Uh, you know, you ever heard Red Medicine? I'm instantly gonna go. Are we best friends? Because we might be. You know, I, I just I instantly re- will respond to that. I guess. I said I said that same thing about the streets. Yeah, there's just some bands that if if you feel like you've, you, you know, that another person understands, you're like, oh, I get you a little bit more than I thought right. I did. You know, Fugazi's one of those for me. So, David, where can people find your YouTube channel slash also podcast now? Sure. I, I do have... Okay, so my main thing is a YouTube channel where I'm talking about soundtracks uh, on vinyl and celebrating film and music... Uh, film and celebrating music and film and television. Uh, and so I do a variety of different kinds of, sh- of shows on, on my YouTube channel. Um, I do kind of carve out some of the audio work that I do with guests and I've thrown that up on, on Apple podcasts. Um, that's going to be a real casual venture. I'm just throwing stuff up there as I get it, but I just want to share those longer conversations. I'm pretty active on uh, Instagram and Twitter, just chatting and sharing all the records that I love and find and buy and places I go. Um, so those are all great places to find me and uh, follow along. Well, thanks once again, David. Um, obviously, if you enjoyed our podcast, you can subscribe to it wherever you're listening to your podcast. You can find us on social media at SoundtrackCast and on Twitter at Soundtrack underscore your. And uh, yeah, thank you for listening and hopefully we'll catch you next time. Thanks for joining us this week on Soundtrack Your Life. Make sure to visit our website, SoundtrackYourLife.net, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too.